Welcome to another installment of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast series in which we chat about subjects featured in our signature publication, Judicial Notice. I am Helen Friedman, retired justice of the Appellate Division First Department and an editor of Judicial Notice. Today is November 9th, 2021. And with me are three distinguished judges, the Honorable Richard Wesley of the Second Circuit, the Honorable Eugene Piggott, formerly of the New York Court of Appeals, and the Honorable Aaron Peridotto of the Appellate Division Fourth Department. We're here to talk about a trailblazing woman, the Honorable M. Dolores Denman, whom all of us here knew and remember, and whose legacy remains with us almost 22 years after her untimely death. Justice Denman was the very first and the longest serving woman to serve as a presiding justice of any of the four appellate divisions in New York State. That service was one of many firsts for Judge Denman. Justice Denman graduated first in her class from the University of Buffalo Law School in 1965. She was also the first full-time housing court judge in the city court of Buffalo. Having been elected to the Supreme Court in 1976, together with Justice Ann Michael, she was one of two first women to be appointed to any appellate division in New York State. That was in 1977, and the appointment was by Governor Hugh Carey. Justice Denman was appointed to the fourth department and Justice Michael to the third department. Just one year later, Justice Denman was persuaded to leave the bench and run for attorney general in the Democratic primary. After losing to attorney general Bob Abrams, Governor Carey appointed Justice Denman to a Supreme Court vacancy and again designated her to the Appellate Division Fourth Department in 1981. In 1991, upon the death of longtime presiding Justice Dennis Dillon, Governor Mario Cuomo appointed Justice Denman to be presiding justice and as I said, the first woman to hold that position in any appellate division in New York State. She served in that capacity for nine years until her death in January of 2000. She left a legacy both as a jurist and as an initiator and supervisor of a massive lasting construction project that now bears her name. She was also the first and only woman for quite a while on the New York State Pattern Jury Instructions Committee, where I got to know, respect, and adore her. Judge Wesley, before you were appointed to the Second Circuit in 2003, you served on the New York Court of Appeals for six years. And then before that, the Appellate Division Fourth Department from 1994 to 1997 with Justice Denman. You gave a memorable eulogy at her funeral, some of which I hope you'll share with us today. 
Judge Piggott, you served with Justice Denman for two years on the Appellate Division Fourth Department and then succeeded her as PJ for six years before your appointment to the Court of Appeals in 2006. Could both of you tell us a little bit about Justice Denman as a colleague and as a presiding judge? Judge Wesley, you could start, and then Judge Piggott, you can chime in. Dolores Denman was different than any other person I ever knew, with the exception of perhaps of Judith Kay. Uh, she and Judith Kay shared many similar uh, qualities. She was exceptional, an exceptional legal mind. She had a South Buffalo appreciation of politics. And for the people who aren't from, from Buffalo, uh, she was Irish and she <laughs> knew neighborhood politics. She knew, she knew retail politics at its finest. She was very good at, at uh, schmoozing with people. Um, she loved the opera. Uh, she loved to drink whiskey. Uh, <laughs> she could curse on occasion when the occasion called for it. And uh, she could quote Shakespeare. Uh, she knew every single aspect of the uh, appellate division. She interviewed all the people who were going to be staff attorneys there. Um, she knew the first names of the people who handed out the briefs. Uh, and I think Gina will agree with me. Uh, she was uh, tough at the conference table. Uh, she, she, even if she wasn't on a case, uh, uh, Gina and I talked about this before. Um, if she wasn't on in the panel hearing the case, the other judges would be around. The fourth department worked that way. It still does, I guess. And um, if she was hearing something that she didn't think was quite right. Um, she might intercede. Now, no other judge who wasn't on a panel had the right to do that, but she could. She was the PJ. And she'd say, I think, I think you folks ought to think about that for a few more days and put the case aside, put it over. Um, uh, she, uh, she, she and Betty Pine edited every single writing that came out of the fourth department, whether it was a Four sentence uh, short order paragraph, uh, uh, just resolving a case or a long opinion. Uh, somewhat to the dismay of some of my colleagues who didn't take well to having their opinions edited all the time. Um, she was omnipresent. Uh, and yet she was also, I think, uh, one of the dearest friends you could have. Jean? I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one thing I'd like to add, just by way of background, because Helen is right, uh, downstate seems to think we're a separate state and entity when it comes to the judiciary. The fourth department, uh, and most people don't realize this, is when it comes to population, is the second largest department in, uh, in the state of New York. Right. The second department is first. We are second, and then the first department is third, and the third department is fourth. In terms of land area, we're the second largest uh, in the state of New York. The Appellate Division Third Department's the largest. We're the second, and then the second and the first. Uh, we are so large that for our for our uh, judges to get to Rochester, where the uh, where the court sits, uh, takes time. Uh, this is not a this is not a commuter court in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and so when when we assemble. Uh, in Rochester, and uh, particularly when, when uh, Judge Denman was there, it was a big deal. And uh, as Dick said, she, she was such a personality that we would, we would dine together often. Uh, we would socialize together quite often. 
Uh, and that built a camaraderie uh, in that court that I've never seen since. And that includes the Court of Appeals. It's just a, an amazing place. Uh, some of the judges would drive two and a half, three hours uh, to get uh, to the court for the purpose of sitting. Uh, and of course, our, our uh, sessions were two week terms. So uh, it, it was uh, quite a thing to have her do that. Uh, I know Dick's gonna talk a little bit about the building uh, that, and I'll, I'll leave that to, uh, to Judge Wesley, but uh, she was so totally involved in all of this. And what, what makes me uh, uh, more proud if, if, if possible is Western New York is where Susan B. Anthony came from. This is, this is where the Women's Hall of Fame is. Uh, the first woman district attorney in the state of New York is That's Charlotte right. Smallwood Cook, who came from Wyoming oh, County in the fourth right. department. Uh, we, we have such a history of women and what, what they've done. Uh, the, the, the Dolores is uh, you know, a shining example of exactly that. Uh, and to be the PJ of the, of the fourth department is no mean feat. You know, for example, take attorney discipline. Uh, every department has it. We have three because we have three judicial districts. They are distant. So that there's a, there's a disciplinary group in, in Rochester, there's one in Syracuse and there's one in Buffalo and Dolores would oversee all of them uh, and their, their references to us when it came, came to it. Mental as, hygiene- As did you, services. Judge Piggott, when you were PJ, of course. <laughs> when, mental hygiene, legal services, there's three. Law guardians, there's three. It is just such a massive court system in the fourth department that I'm not sure most people understand or have appreciation for what Dolores did. Uh, and then of course, uh, put a building up uh, in her spare time. It was truly remarkable. Okay, well, Judge Wesley, can you tell us a little bit about her political acumen and in, in putting up that building, as you said, in her spare time? <laughs> I, I'd like to give a tip of the hat to the article that Jean Fahey wrote uh, that appears in the publication judicial notice. Um, it's absolutely lovely. And it brought back so many wonderful memories for me because Dolores had a, a keen interest in politics. And I think most of this will be seen by judges and by lawyers. The public oftentimes thinks that judges kind of no longer have an interest or, or think about, about politics. I mean, they don't act politically, but they, they, um, they're always interested. And Dolores was keenly interested in, in political life. But she, but she absolutely, the, the, the new courthouse, uh, the process that she went through really showed that her skills had not diminished from the time she had run for attorney general to the time, the years that she spent as the PJ. It had become apparent that the Hall of Justice was not adequate for the fourth department. There wasn't enough room. We were spread all over the place. Uh, I was a resident judge, and so I was living in splendor uh, in my chambers. My chambers were great, but some of the visiting judges suffered uh, uh, from, uh, uh, from very small and inadequate chambers, and, and we were just spread all over the place. The problem was is that the library was there, and everybody was accustomed to having the library there. All the other lawyers in town wanted the library there. They wanted it in the courthouse. And frankly, so did the judges, the trial judges, the county court judges, and the Supreme Court judges housed there. And, but Dolores was, she had great vision and she, she knew that she had to find a place to kind of separate us. And we went 
she dragged me all over Rochester. We were in the Marine Midland Tower. And she, oh no, the tower won't work. It's too tall. Oh no, she was worried about that. And she looked around and looked around. And finally, she found this building over in the East End. And there was a problem. There was this really upscale uh, music place called Milestones. And the East End was seeing itself awakened uh, as a cultural area for the young uh, hipster set of the, of the mid nineties, the emerging uh, 21st century. And uh, there, was a lot of there was a lot of resistance to it. There were some people on city council who were very much opposed to it. Um, and Dolores started working the phones and started working people. And, and she had a, a willing co-conspirator in John Littman, who was the administrative judge at the time. And uh, she referred to him as my Johnny, my Johnny. <laughs> and she was always, you know, always, and if there were problems in Albany, that was my Johnny. I got to give my Johnny a call. And she began to, she began to meet with county legislators and got to know some of the people on city council, but there was still resistance. And so shortly, right around that time, she started these uh, tours. We, start, we, we took the court on the road. And so we went to Syracuse and we had a session of court at Syracuse. Now I didn't, I thought it was just that we were going out there to kind of, you know, to make it easier for the folks from Syracuse to argue their cases and, and let Johnny Lawton and John Ballio were from Syracuse who were on the court at that time, you know, be the judges on the panel in front of the local media and stuff and give them some local exposure. And then, and then there was a session up in Buffalo and she kept talking about taking the court on the road. And then Dolores she writes a letter to the, to the Democrat and Chronicle and saying, you know, the court doesn't have to be here. The court could be in Syracuse or Buffalo. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, and she, she got a little tough. The old uh, school marm in her uh, came out and she kind of said, look, you know, and then everybody, and and I and it and it changed people's attitudes considerably. The Eastman School of Music is right in that area, also right, quite adjacent to the building. And the University of Rochester came out in favor of the move. And so you and, were able you were able to build a courthouse despite the music uh, objectors. Um, yeah. in that yeah. area. Milestones quickly found a new home and settled in quite well. <laughs> and the process in the building, I, I must say, you know, I walked through every one of those buildings with her and, and that building at the East End was perfect. It was perfect in many ways. We had to build an additional building onto it, but it was perfect because Dolores knew exactly what she wanted. Jay and I agree this is the a perfect expression of Dolores, both the the functionality of the building uh, to improve the, the working of the court, the availability of the court uh, to the public itself and to, and to the lawyers, moving the library and putting it in a place where it could expand and, and had adequate room for servicing the bar and the folks that needed to use it and, and finding a home where the court could have its own identity and establish itself. Uh, and so uh, that, that chord is really, is Dolores Denver. It is, uh, and, and, it is a perfect manifestation of her. Judge Peridotto, you were both a trial lawyer and appellate lawyer and Bar Association president before your election to the Supreme Court in 2003. 
and then your appointment to the fourth department appellate division in 2006. <clears throat> and again, you're on the short list given to the governor for appointment to the Court of Appeals. And I say again and again, you appear before Judge Denman as an advocate. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what it was like to appear before Judge Denman and to what extent she served as a role model for you and other women attorneys? Well, she, she really, I mean, what a remarkable woman she was. She truly was a role model for my generation, my generation of women lawyers. Um, when I started practicing law, she had already been on the appellate division for several years. Um, I remember an early, uh, one of the memories I have of her is, is going to an early CLE in 1985 on products liability. I sat in awe of the woman, you know, the woman, the teacher, the lawyer, the judge. She was so intelligent. She was so poised. And boy, did she ever command a presence in a room. I mean, she was just amazing. Um, and then, of course, I remember arguing at the appellate division um, as a young lawyer. And the one thing that always gave me comfort, you know, I was arguing in front of her when I was in my 20s, and some of and my opponents were often twice my age. She always treated me with the same respect as she did every other lawyer in the room. And that was very comforting as a young lawyer. Um, I also remember um, in the late 1990s when I was president of the Bar Association, she invited me to be the keynote speaker at the admission ceremony for the new lawyers. And she took me back in the robing room. I felt like I was going behind the curtain. You know, it was like I was being invited backstage at Lincoln Center to see the star performers. It was the coolest thing, you know, because I had admired this woman from the moment I be became a lawyer. So it was just um, awesome. She was and, and now, of course, I have the privilege of working in the courthouse that bears her name. It is just really, she was an amazing woman. She was smart. She was tough. She was um, poised. She was articulate. Um, she really, she was it. <laughs> <laughs> I became acquainted with Justice Denman in 1994 when I was appointed to the Pattern Jury Instructions Committee. Until then, as I said, Judge Denman was the only woman among the 16 judges on the New York State Committee. She became a mentor and a role model to me too. Her warm, welcoming manner together with her love of and concern with and care about and precision in the use of the English language was legendary. As we noted, she had been a school teacher, an English teacher before she went to law school. And uh, she was so concerned about our language and our use. Like so many others, I was enthralled by and delighted when she came away from Rochester, which was pretty hard for her to do when she was supervising the construction of that building but she often did, and she did attend our meetings in New York City. As Judge Wesley mentioned, we have a beautiful article about Justice Denman in issue 16 of Judicial Notice, written by the Honorable Eugene Fahey and Dr. Gordon Lyons. It's about Judge Denman, and it discusses her, both her remarkable life story 
and talks about some of her important decisions, which remain to this day as precedent in our courts. And Helen, if I could pick up on something that Judge Wesley said about her being an English teacher. One, one of the things when, when we're in conference, when the court is in conference, the whole court is there and all of the decisions uh, are reviewed by every single member of the court, which meant that when the 12 of us are there, uh, about 10 of us are sleeping or nodding off while Betty Pine and Dolores Demon go line by line by line. Used to drive Judge uh, Green absolutely nuts. Uh, but she would be the one to suggest a comma here, a semicolon there, a new paragraph on some place. And she was the one, and Dick, maybe you can enlighten me a little bit more about that. We, uh, we, I don't want to say get criticized, but a lot of people say, how come, you know, you guys in the fourth department always do mems? You know, there's not a lot of opinion writing. And my recollection in talking to Dolores when I first got to the court was, uh, we're not here making the law. We're applying the law as it exists in the state of New York. And all that takes is, you know, applying the, 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 the law to the facts of the case in a mem. And it made eminent sense to all of us until, you know, unless there was a situation where uh, a, 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 an opinion might be necessary or required. And, uh, and she'd be the one or someone else would say, you know, why don't you write an opinion on this? I think it's of interest, et cetera. And that's when we would do it. But it was very, very efficient. All the cards were face up to every judge. And our decisions came out six weeks after oral argument, almost without exception. And if you wanted to, to review a case, if you're about to uh, say, I want to take this case home, which meant I want to take a second look at it, you better be ready to, <laughs> to publish that case when you get back the next time. We were very time conscious with respect to the, the lawyers who argued the case and, of course, their clients. Uh, and that was all Dolores. It was just it was a remarkable thing. Uh, that made us all feel very comfortable because we knew exactly what was expected of us each and every time. Dolores practiced uh, judicial selflessness. She appreciated the fact that it wasn't about her, it was about the law. And, and so therefore, it wasn't about the fact that her name was appended to an opinion. It was about whether the law was clearly articulated. And unless we were plowing new ground, as RCW would say at the conference table. If we weren't plowing new ground, there was no reason to uh, just issue an opinion. Um, the judicial humility is a lesson not every judge always learns. Uh, I, I've sat now on three appellate courts and it's, it's occasionally in short supply, uh, but it's not about us. It is about the law. It should be, and, and Dolores practiced that um, um, and, and taught it, uh, a lesson well taught at the conference table. With your indulgence, Helen, I, you know, I, in all the things I've ever written, the only the thing that I received the most comment about is the eulogy to Dolores uh, that I wrote um, uh, back in, in uh, January of 2000 after Dolores passed away. And if I could, I'd like to read to you just a small portion of it if that's okay with you. Certainly, I think Judge Peridotto and I both said that it moved us to tears then. And once again, when you sent it to us recently, go ahead. I'm gonna do my best that, you know, it, it startles me to think that Doris has been gone that long because it feels like just yesterday to me in some ways. So let me 
go towards the, towards the closing of the of the of this in the talking about the courthouse and what a courthouse it is. For those of you who have not visited it, I asked you to think about a journey to Rochester, to walk through that beautiful building, to explore its corners, to look at every carpet chair, every light fixture. For there you will see the touch of Dolores Denman. Dolores picked everything out. That building is more than a testament to Dolores. It is Dolores, her class, her elegance, her clean and unrestricted view, the justice must be an expression of a higher plane, a plane where humans aspire to the best they have to offer of themselves, a place founded on fairness, a place of hope. And now Dolores is gone and all of us here will miss her. God, how we will miss her, but the court lives on in the toil of men and women she loves so much. The judges and employees of the court who seek to resolve the pain of divorce to quell the violence of crime, to provide mercy in an ordered and caring society, all that in the beautiful building Dolores dreamed of and made reality in all of its clarity of purpose at East and Chestnut. Dolores dressed in black with pearls. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's a wonderful ending to our little chat here. I wanna thank very much all of you, Judge Wesley, Judge Piggott, and Judge Peridotto for joining me today to remember this wonderful woman. And I urge you again to read the full story in Judicial Notice 16. Thank you. And goodbye. Thank, thank you, you, Helen.